Welcome to the Future Accords on KTUH University of Hawaii Radio for the cultural and educational enrichment of the students of Hawaii as well as the global community. On this show, we will interview thought leaders to hear about their past, present, and hopes for the future. Join us as we dive into topics around the five P's of sustainable development, people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnerships. I'm your host, Ari Eisenstadt, and let's explore the future together. Aloha, and welcome to the second ever episode of the Future Accords. We have such a special guest here coming in on his way across the Pacific Ocean from Berkeley to Hong Kong, Dr. Dakai. Dakai, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. So today we're talking about artificial intelligence. You're here, uh, you've been speaking and, and participating in one of the most interesting artificial intelligence conferences in the world happening right here in Hawaii. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Triple AI, which is the Association for Advancement of AI, has kind of been the, the flagship conference for AI um, for forever. So it's the history of the field. Together with it, there are a lot of events focusing on different aspects of AI. And the one that uh, is just happening right now is called AIES. And it's uh, the AAAI and Joint ACM Conference on AI Ethics and Society. And I think this is like super important today because even as we're racing ahead and developing machine learning and new kinds of stronger AI models in labs, already we're seeing uh, impact on society that is disruptive beyond what a lot of us, you know, realize is happening. And a lot of this is sort of unintended consequences that are sneaking up on us. It's not it's not Skynet or Ex Machina <laughs> murdering us. It's a lot more insidious than that. And so like it's really great that there's now a growing community around the world that is beginning to wake up from not only the scientific and engineering sides, but also from, you know, the policy sides, from the governance sides, from the philosophical ethics sides and so forth, and coming together, right, and asking ourselves, what is this brave new world that we're building? How do we build it? How do we, um, to me, one of the most important things, raise public awareness in a healthy way? Um, because we, as a species, need to be, like, aware of how we're navigating our our future. Amazing. So tune in for the next half an hour as we dive in deep with Dakai on this. Dakai is a uh, professor at Berkeley's International Computer Science Institute, uh, as well as one of the founding faculty of the University of Science and Technology in Hong Kong. And today on the Future Accords, the way we like to divide it is putting it into uh, context of the past, present, and future, uh, and hear your vision for what the optimal, sustainable scenario for the future will be. So let's let's dive into your past. Where where are you from? Where did you grow up? How did you get inspired into this into this field? <laughs> I was born smack in the middle of the country. I was born in St. Louis, um, and uh, spent um, eleven years of my main childhood in growing up in Illinois, uh, in the Chicago area. And you know, I think. This this was already very interesting to me from the point of view of, um, at the time, being uh, one of the only Asian families within sight. Uh, from a very early age, caused me to be thinking about questions of how how does human culture work? You know, like, what is this kind of bicultural understanding of the world that I'm getting, right? Because clearly, um, if you're growing up in the Midwest, you're getting a very American perspective on the world. But, you know, I had this heritage view that I could understand from grandparents and so forth. Hmm, that's an interesting way they, they have of looking at the world. And and then, like, if you are looking at the languages that they're using to describe that world, 
that's where it gets really fascinating, right? Because language shapes our thought. You know, it's the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Um, it's it's not absolutely deterministic, but very much the way that you talk to yourself, the way that you you're you know telling the story of your world frames how you understand the world. And there's some things that are so easy to say in English that are like next to impossible to say in Chinese, say, uh, and vice versa. And so those kinds of things began to like appear to me as a child growing up. And then conversely, you would recognize things that are in common. I, I had this amazing experience where like uh, one day I was just jamming away on this hundred year old piano, you know, uh, in the dark and, you know, I was getting classically trained and also jazz and blues. And so I was just noodling around in the dark and my grandpa, you know, stops by and he's listening and, and I was playing, you know, with blues and he goes, Hmm, your playing sounds Chinese. I'm going, what? And, you know, sort of clicked and then I realized certain things about pentatonic scales and so forth. And so then you start digging and you start asking what is fundamentally human, right? What is universal and what are things that you can actually translate between, and I think that's kind of where it all started. And then I came to, you know, move to California and everything just kind of shook loose. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in California, you started really pioneering this idea of web translation and taking these ideas and putting them in a computer context. What was that process like? Yeah, that was actually a, right after California. So, so I came to California, you know, I was at UCSD for undergrad in this liberal arts or all college program that, that exposed me to tons of stuff and computer music and all like in cognitive science, neural nets and stuff. And then went to Berkeley. Berkeley for grad school. At the time, AI was completely dominated by rule-based, logic-based, knowledge-based approaches. And it was really kind of funky because like, I came into this group full of what are you know, really now extremely well-known pioneers in different aspects of AI. And we had, in that group, built one of the first dialogues, you know, like a, a predecessor of Siri. The idea was anybody could walk up and ask questions about Unix, about the operating system. Like, how do I cut disk space? And, and so um, my advisor, I was a first year PhD student, you know, said, oh, you know, we've got a lot of the system built. We've got the parser, analyzes syntax. We've got semantic interpreter and the user model and then plan recognition goal analysis and a plan, a dialogue planner, a generator. We're just missing this tiny little component between the parser uh, and the semantic interpreter because the parser tells you that cut is a verb, right? But the semantic interpreter is already working on the knowledge representation with the logical predicates and needs to know that the node for the action there, the predicate is the reduce node, not the um, sense of cut as in, you know, um, shortening or or cutting class or cutting the cheese or cutting the grass or <laughs> whatever. And so you just have to, um, this summer, write um, a little module that will go from cut a verb and figure out which sense of cut that was. So I go away for a week and I come back and it's like, you can't solve this problem without all the real world knowledge you have and probability because this is all degrees of evidence. There's not a logical rule here. Um, and that began this six year fight with my advisor uh, and me just like over and over pushing. And, you know, like I ended up developing the first of what's called maximum entropy model, probabilistic modeling, uh, learning oriented in language understanding, um, which, you know, I managed to convert my advisor about six months before I graduated. One day he finally said, oh my God, I finally understand what you've been talking about. This is great. <laughs> By then I had already accepted this offer, this, this amazing challenge to go found with 400 other compatriots, heavily from Berkeley, this ambitious American style research university in Hong Kong, which at that time had no research culture. 
um, in fact, still had shanty towns, right? And and Shenzhen across the border was nothing, and now like all our iPhones and Android phones and Macs and everything are made there. And so like it was this huge challenge. You know, I'd already explored the world in the course of grad school, backpacked all over the place. And I thought, okay, we're gonna go do this kind of Peace Corps mentality, right? Um, and so I arrived there, and I'm looking around. Hong Kong, by law. It, it was a British colony still. Now it's a Chinese colony, essentially. Um, but but by law, it's bilingual. Everything that's said in government, in par- in the parliament, which is called Legislative Council, and the laws, everything have to be translated between English and Chinese. And so they got dozens of permanent staff translating at expert levels, all this stuff. And meanwhile, I'm walking around society and seeing this big cultural gap between the 1%, right, who are the English-speaking, educated, wealthy classes, and the 99% who are you know generally lower educated, uh, Cantonese speaking, Chinese speaking, and thinking, gosh, I could, I, like, maybe what I should do is use the new machine learning language technology to tackle that problem. And that's when I started using that government data as training data um, and developing brand new machine translation models saying, let's learn the relationship between English and Chinese by itself. And the web was just emerging, you know, this is like the mid nineties. And, and I was like, hmm, we should like accelerate this and put this on the web, right? And make it a web service. And that was the first web uh, translation AI public service in the world. Wow. So what is then the connection between web translation and machine learning? So the web translation part of it was the the way to get the service to the public. And, you know, I was also interested in that and had developed uh, an entire platform, which is what we now call Ajax, long before the term came into being, you know, so that it, it could run without any plugins or there was a plugin version and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was a delivery platform for the machine learning engine that was learning by itself how to do the translation and then on the fly doing translations as you would go from one page to the other. So the entire project was something that was hard for people to wrap their heads around until we built this delivery platform, right? Because at that time, people didn't even understand machine learning. People were still fighting against machine learning, Mm. right? I know it sounds crazy today, right? But people in AI were still like, numbers, no, probably, no, 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 it's logic, it's about logic, Right. And, and like couldn't even publish papers like you have to. We had to create our own conferences to publish papers because AI as a traditional field hated it so much. Right. And so to go beyond that and tell people, oh, yeah, by the way, my machine has learned the relationship between English and Chinese by itself. And it's able to like produce rough translations by itself. You know, it's just like people didn't get it at all until you showed them when they walked up to browsers. Like I remember we were show, demonstrating at one one thing in Singapore in early Internet days and the BBC and Time and so forth and Wall Street Journal were coming up. And they were like just because they could see it in front of them on a browser, they, they could see the page turn from Chinese into English or vice versa. And, you know, Jaws hit the floor. So I think it was really important for us to not just work on the, the back-end intelligence part of it, but also on the front-end delivery, like how, how does this actually interface to us as humans? Because that's always the most important thing. What, how does it impact on human society? Hmm. How does it connect us? And then I feel like the third dimension then that you've been working on is around computational creativity, that after hmm. machine learning, what is that next step of really allowing AI to become creative? It's funny because one of the things that you hear is it's like become a trope. You know, people are beginning to be aware that 40%, 50% of jobs are going to evaporate. Traditional jobs are going to evaporate in the next decade or two, thanks to automation, AI, and robotics, right? And that's scary. And I think we need to get ahead of that. 
right? There's no question it's totally disruptive. Um, and I think we have to rethink all of our economic assumptions. Uh, it's also an opportunity at the same time. But one of the things that has has come somehow as um, a cliche in that discussion is, oh, well, AIs aren't creative. They're mechanical, right? And you can just see in people's heads that they're idea of what AI is, is coming from, you know, like these Hollywood depictions of AIs that speak in mechanical tones and (laughs) are um, unable to process emotion and, you know, function as logic machines. And that dates back to that same old-fashioned notion of AI that we fought so hard against. Today's AI is not like that. It's machine learning. Everything's changes of grace. Our translation systems are incorporating all kinds of context already. And a lot of that context includes things that are sentiment features and emotion features and things like that. It's no harder to model that than it is anything else in intelligence. And I think it's, it's really kind of um, a misleading idea. But creativity still remains the the province of humans. And so what we should do is we should focus on the creative jobs, training people for creative jobs, because AIs are only going to do the non-creative stuff. Now, you know, that's true to a limited extent today, where 99% of what passes for AI is not really AI, right? Mm. Today, in the hype, everybody and their grandmother is, quote, doing AI. Right. And what does that mean for most people is anything from, oh, I wrote some if this, then that rules <laughs> and I'm going to market it as AI uh, and it's not. Or I'm going to grab my data set and I'm going to grab an off the shelf toolkit, TensorFlow or whatever, and I'm going to dump the data in, turn the crank and oh, magic. Right. OK, that's that's doing AI only in the sense of I'm using an AI tool that somebody built. Right. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about really, you know, doing AI, the other there's tool users and there's tool builders. Right. So in AI research, we're, we're like, here's what's wrong with that tool. It doesn't do even what this three year old can do. Right. And, and here's how we're going to take a big step toward fixing that. Right. And so building the next generations of tools. And in that process, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about, well, we need to generalize better. The machines shouldn't be just brute force memorizing, which is what a lot of them do today, even the deep learning stuff heavily. They should be efficiently using small amounts of data and realizing from those small amounts of data what the correct abstractions are, what the correct generalizations are. To do that, you actually need a great deal more creativity. There is no true intelligence without creativity. What is creativity, right? Um, so the famous philosopher Maggie Bowden defined three different kinds of creativity way back. And they're like synthesis and combination and transformation. Basic processes by which you take existing raw material, older knowledge, and you, you know, you, it's, it's recombinant. There are different ways that you can use those pieces to create new ideas. That's how creativity works by some combination of those processes. And we showed in recent work, those are exactly the kind of processes that all of our systems do. Our machine translation systems have to be able to do because they have to be able to translate sentences they've never seen before. Our music AI systems that are learning to improvise have to do it. And so it's important for us to resist the temptation to think, oh, we know how to deal with AI, right? Because there's a bit of fear, natural. Right. And, and so uh, you, you hear people saying things like, oh, this is the fourth industrial revolution, because, you know, it's comforting to think that there were three. We know how to do it already. This is just the fourth next step. I mean, it is a fourth industrial revolution, but also it's the first of its kind mm-hmm. ever. What came before with the industrial revolution was automation of muscle, of labor. But everything changes when what you're automating is thought mm. and opinion 
right? And our AIs today are able not only to hold opinions, but to shape our opinions, right? And, and so it, you can no longer think of it as a mechanical tool. You can no longer think of it just as a passive slave that we have total control over. No, the machines today, they're already very active members of our society. And they learn, they imitate, they are influential, more so than you know, 80, 90% of human beings in society. Right. And so the way they're doing that uses a lot of those processes of creativity. And so even though it's comforting to think, oh, well, there are things that are uniquely human, I think we need to sort of have our eyes open to the fact that though creative processes are just as AIable as any other process, mental processes, it's going to happen. And so instead of pretending it's not happening, we need to think now. How do we want our, the resulting society to look? Right. Let's talk more about that present moment and, and your personal work. Could you tell us more about what your what your regular schedule is like? Because you're going one week from Berkeley, then to Hong Kong. You also have a musical group called Reorientate. What is your life like and how are you able to allow AI to come into your life and help you manage all of that? I, you know, I think I'm just a weirdo um, <laughs> because all my life through no doing of my own, I've just been, you know, in circumstances where I end up thinking a lot about how we're thinking, right? And in many ways, that that is what uh, m- many more of us are becoming aware is is what mindfulness is about, mm. right? Um, so not just sort of reacting and thinking without without being mindful of how we're doing that. And because of the circumstances I found myself in, I was kind constantly reflecting on, gee, how am I thinking? How does that work, right? And what biased me? And you know, like sort of um, questioning assumptions, right? I think it's really really helpful as a process. I, I try to like get my students to do it. Always question the assumptions. Right. What what were my assumptions? Do they actually hold? Are they just kind of a working assumption that might be wrong? And so I need to come and revisit it after my analysis. Or is that an assumption that is empirically, you know, rock solid? Or could it be another way? And so um, in in my life, I'm constantly, you know, it's, it's like a motto to me, this process of reorienting, of looking at things in different ways. Right. Instead of just seeing something and, oh, yeah, that's it. Walk around it, right? Look at it from different angles. Reorientate that perspective until you get a deeper understanding of really what's underneath that thing. And so for me, it's become quite um, a rewarding process <laughs> to do these different things and look at things from different viewpoints, a scientific viewpoint, an engineering viewpoint, a human viewpoint, you know, an artistic viewpoint, or, you know, Native American viewpoint, or a European viewpoint, or an Asian viewpoint. Right. And understand how do these relate to each other? Right. Look past uh, maybe some of the superficial differences, because often oftentimes what appear to be differences are actually just how we named them. Right. Like the story I was telling about playing blues and having (laughs) my grandpa say that sounds Chinese. Right. And you find underneath that things that are really more universal to humans. And then you also find the interesting little differences, right, that add spice. Like, oh, you can bend this note. I know it sounds like an insane kind of uh, <laughs> way of life, but um, it's kind of rich. So a, lot of, a lot of people talk about work-play balance and, and things like that. I think all of these ideas are about how to, like, push our reset buttons regularly, right? So we stay out of ruts that we're thinking in, or mindsets that we're thinking in, and it helps, you know, just kind of jog us and 
look at the bigger picture and say, oh, here's, here's a path where we can reconcile the problems. Amazing. I think you're really that prototype of the next generation rock star and philosopher <laughs> in that way. So that's great to hear that perspective around orientating your, your perspective. In looking now at the future, what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence and the future of, I guess, something that's on everyone's mind is really our political systems mm. and our relationship to social media and all this data oh, that yeah. we're getting. In what ways, I guess, and focused on really the optimum and the best case scenario, how can we allow AI to really, really optimize our political systems? I think this is one of the the problems, if you like, the, that we're facing is that AI is being uh, weaponized in ways that are unintended consequences. They're, they're really not what many of us, when we were developing you know, these kinds of techniques, were thinking about uh, using it for. So you end up with, I mean, everybody's heard about the Cambridge Analytica story now and the fake news bots and so forth. Between, you know, connectivity that the internet uh, and mobile, you know, and, and so forth have given us uh, with social media networks and the AIs that are deciding how to prioritize the information that gets through these systems to people's eyes and ears, we're in um, a situation where uh, it's very easy for AIs to be abused, to create polarization, to create mindsets that are divisive, to drive uh, fear and hatred, which which are, you know, for evolutionary reasons, um, the strongest uh, human motivators, right, amongst all of the emotions. We have the gamut of emotions ranging not only from fear to trust and joy and anticipation and so on. For survival reasons in evolution, fear is hardwired to be, you know, like three times stronger than anything else. And then the problem is that in D.C., uh, all the politicians know this, right? They Like all the lobbyists know this. To get any sort of legislation passed in D.C., it's like you have to invoke fear. It's three times more powerful. And this is actually not, I think, sustainable, right? Because in order to get anything done, you have to demonize something or someone, right? That fear is basically uh, driving uh, a divisive wedge, creating some sort of an in-group, and you're f- fearful of some sort of outgroup or, or something like that, right? And and so it creates stronger and stronger polarizations that become self-fulfilling prophecies, right? And and we we're seeing that happen domestically already, you know, with the, the country in the most divided, polarized state I've ever seen, and as well as internationally. And it's very regressive, I think, of these polarized politics, you know, parochialism, ultranationalism, and so forth, and it really behooves us to remember that this is the sort of stuff that immediately preceded both of the previous world wars. Mm. Uh, And in both of those eras, everybody was saying to the few people who were sort of crying warnings and alerts, people were just saying, oh, don't worry, it'll sort itself out, right? And then people don't realize how quickly you can slide down that slippery slope. What worries me is that back in those times, we hadn't invented nuclear weapons yet. And today... You know, not only do we have nuclear weapons that are way more terrifying than at the end of World War II, but AI and robotics are also at the same time, you know, and, and um, CRISPR, you know, and other biotech uh, and, and chemical technologies, they're democratizing weapons of mass destruction. This should be scary. This, this should really scare us because we're entering an era where weapons of mass destruction are not only in the hands of nation states, which you would hope would be a little bit more responsible, but also increasingly accessible to uh, non-state actors. 
right, to terrorist groups, to criminal gangs, to disgruntled individuals with 3D printers in their basement, where, you know, they can print out very soon uh, fleets, thousands of drones carrying projectile weapons or um, chemical weapons or whatever, and and, uh, bioweapons. This is, like, really terrifying because it's like imagining a world where half your population is walking around carrying the equivalent of nuclear arms. Do you really want to be taking your chances that not a single one of them is going to press their launch button? That is not a good bet, right? And, and that's the sort of era that we're looking at entering. So what does AI look like from a perspective of a tool of peace? How could we use the same technology to prevent people from going that route? I think what's really, really important here is to attack the root causes of what causes people to push that launch button. Right. What happens is that people lose out on on these competitive in-group, out-group games of fear. So depending on where they're competing on, you know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it ranges from basic survival, right? And so people have a fear of extinction, right? And then a fear of mutilation. And as you get sort of up the hierarchy of needs, you, you know, it's sort of like fear of humiliation. Um, and at the top, you know, which is self-actualization in that hierarchy, people are fearful of meaninglessness of their lives. And, and what happens is that when people lose that game, um, they lash out. And again, you know, it used to be when you lashed out, the damage you could inflict was limited, right? There's only so much you can do with clubs or arrows or even a gun, right? But given the way that AI and robotics are democratizing weapons, it's going to be a lot worse off. And so what we need to do is we need to look at, well, today, you know, we've got largely a liberal economic order worldwide, 80%. And even in China and Russia and so on, it's it's a game that's based on fear, right? People compete because they're afraid of those horrible consequences. And I think a lot of this is also driven by this mindset of resource scarcity, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of resource scarcity is artificially created today. The world is, let's face it today, has enough wealth, more than enough wealth to go around. We're doing a lousy, lousy job mm-hmm. of allocating it because everybody's still stuck in this resource scarcity mindset. And to allocate resources, we set up these com- competition games um, because it's efficient, because fear does motivate, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> the, the consequences of that are too enormous for us to not be really thinking hard now about how do we re-architect resource allocation so that the fear axis doesn't get out of control. How do we make much better use of the other emotional axes, the trust, the joy, the anticipation axes, uh, in better designed resource allocation schemes? I think AI has a big role to play in many ways in that story. AI can do things to address resource scarcity. It can do things to address the mindset of resource scarcity and and better promote a, a mindset of resource abundance. And I think there's a lot that AI can do to better allocate resources, both, again, directly. Resource allocation is an optimization problem, which is what AIs are really good at doing. (laughs) Uh, And so there are a lot of things that we can do, ranging from rethinking antitrust, which is very inefficient right now. Maybe we could make better use of AI for antitrust. Maybe we can make better use of AI for allocating resources in in ways that might be similar to universal basic income or, or some variant of that that still optimize productivity. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, I think we can use AI to um, sort of counter the polarizing mindsets that AI is currently being used to produce by helping people understand better and, and 
reducing the size of the outgroups, re- reducing the intensity of the fear-mongering, and helping people to relate better, to empathize better with those that are not currently today in their in, whatever their in-group happens to be. So we'll be able to translate in a similar way to languages, yeah. our economic systems of going from scarcity to abundance. That yeah, sounds we, great. We, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, need to, we need to look at tr- cultural translation. Not just language. Language is, defines a lot of culture, but we really need to push that a, a whole level deeper. What about the environment? Is there a place for AI to help us in our our environmental issues? Is that is that rooted in our scarcity mindset as well? Very, very much. Um, just like we were uh, saying a moment ago with, with the environment and with climate change and sustainability, the problem is not that we don't have the tech or that we don't have the technological skills. We do. Our problem is the social will, the political will. Mm. And a lot of that is driven by the language in which these issues are, are, are being framed. So I don't know if you've heard of Frank Luntz, who uh, he's a famous, uh, well-known Republican messaging guru. Way back, he was the one who wrote, he wrote a memo um, advising, we need to get away from the term global warming, right? Because global warming is alarming people. Mm right? It, it, global warming makes um, people think of an extinction event, which it is, <laughs> right? But uh, Frank Luntz was saying, use instead the term climate change, because that sounds like you're moving from Pennsylvania down to Florida. Um, it's not so alarming. And so it'll, the issue will, will recede in people's mind, right? Again, Fear being the strongest motivator. He was worried global warming was a term that would drive fear in people and that would actually propel real moves to address the environmental problems that were causing it, right? And so since he didn't want that to happen, uh, he suggested framing it as climate change. Uh, Unfortunately, I think we've, we've fallen for that. Everybody's walking around using the term climate change, even those people who are trying to fight global warming. Mm. And so I think, again, these are things that they they go viral, they create echo chambers, um, they spread from there. And in this particular case, successfully, so that it's actually taken over the entire conversational sphere. Those are things where maybe the AI should be thinking a little bit better about, well, is this really an accurate piece of information to be spreading? Um, Is it really something that we want to let uh, people who are playing viral games take control of? Or do we need to have a more balanced conversation and say, yeah, it is climate change and it's warming the globe? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think there's a lot of stuff in, you know, that's just the obvious example. But in, in terms of environment, there's a ton of examples on on things like that. So, like you know, you can talk about the way uh, na- you're, you frame nature, it, and it ranges all the way from people who are saying things like, "When I talk about climate change, I don't talk about science. I talk about fishing, hmm. flooding, farming, whatever." Or you can say, uh, "God gave us nature to use," right? And that. And all of these statements are not necessarily something that you could label as false or fake news. It's their implications and their associations. It's what's not said that makes the difference, right? Because if you accept the, the latter statement, it's like, oh, well, you know, we, it's up to us how we want to exploit nature, natural resources, right? We shouldn't not use it. He gave it to us to use is the implication, even though it's not really said, mm-hmm. right? And so the choice of how the 
the information that's being passed around is languaged. And that choice is being made by AIs today. It has huge unintended consequences on the social will or the lack of social will to take the right steps to address our future and our children's future. Wow. That brings me to uh, my closing question and is really in our relationship to artificial intelligence. And, And you use this great term around parenting AI. What does that look like? How can we be good parents to this new super intelligence that we're developing over the next few years? How do we nurture it to be compassionate, to be responsible, sustainable? uh, And how do we regulate it so that it doesn't make humans obsolete at the same time? You know, um, I think we, we need to look at exactly what our relationship to our artificial children is. When, when you're talking to Siri, when you're on Facebook, when you're Googling things, are you actually following the same principles that you would if, if you were parenting your human child? Ask yourself, how would you parent your human child? Right. And most people will say, well, you know, I'd want to teach them to be fair. I'd want to be, teach them to have an open mind, to, you know, listen to a diversity of, of views and um, accept the, the differences, process them for what what's good in them, and then evaluate, right? Uh, and when you're evaluating these different ideas, um, do it on the basis of empirical support and logic and ration, you know, rational thinking, right? So this is how we would try to raise our children. And now ask what you do when you get on your AI device. <laughs> it's like every time you click like, you're teaching the opposite. You're teaching, I, I want to hear things that are consistent with what I already think. Every time you share or retweet some funny but offensive cap on somebody, you're teaching that it's okay to, you know, kind of bully. So I had this great experience where a couple ran up to me uh, a year after they'd heard my talk uh, about this, and they ran up to me and they gave me these huge hugs, and they're like, oh my God, Takai, we just wanted to tell you, ever since we heard that talk, we've been talking so politely to Siri and Alexa. (laughs) It's like, yes, 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 this is exactly the mindset we need. We need to be thinking of and treating our AIs that that we're holding in the palms of our hands all the time as these human children and that we are setting examples for. Because in the end, in the end, all modern machine learning AI, they are reflections of ourselves. And they reflect what they learn. They write back into society. They decide what ideas to share. They decide what memes to spread, what attitudes to reward. So we are the training data. And we need to be holding ourselves to that standard for our artificial children for the sake of eventually our human children. All right. So let's be good parents on yeah. that. <laughs> thank you so much again, Dakai, for sharing this insight no, with us. What is the best way for listeners to follow more of your work? Do you have a website or something that, that you can share? There is like a Prescott website at Dakai.org. It's just D-E-K-A-I.org. If you hit me up on Facebook.com uh, slash reorientate, that's actually the, the music group, but, but you can use that and send a message. Uh, to connect more directly to me. Okay, and as always, be respectful. We're we're training AI here, so let's be good humans. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dakai, thank you so much for coming here on the, the Future Accords. Look forward to having you back. Thank you, Ari. Aloha. Aloha.